everybody, I'm Zoe. And I'm Chandi. And this is Bound by the Cloak. We're all exposed to true crime these days through countless books, films, podcasts, and documentaries. In all of these, we hear about the lives of the perpetrators and the lives of the victims. But what about the family members of the victims? We don't really hear about them, do we? In this episode, we will step into the lives of those who have experienced the unimaginable. The family members who have lost a loved one to homicide. These survivors are called homicide survivors. Homicide is a tragedy that shatters lives, leaving behind a trail of pain and unanswered questions. But in the midst of the darkest moments, there's a quiet strength that emerges in this unimaginable grief. Today, we're speaking to Dr. Jan Canty, a renowned psychologist, author, podcast host, speaker, and a homicide survivor. Not only is she an expert in the field of trauma and resilience, but she has personally walked the path that she guides others through, having lost a loved one to homicide. Hey, Jan, how's it going? Welcome to the podcast. Good morning. I'm fine. How are you? Yeah, doing well, doing well. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, my story briefly is that my husband was, of 11 years, was murdered in Detroit in 1985 in July. And because of the intense media coverage and because of the social stigma that always follows homicide, it would not let up. After 18 months, I decided to leave altogether. And so I kind of wanted to do the flip-flop and go to a place where nobody knew me that it was off the beaten track. And that was easier to do in 85 because the internet had not yet been invented. So I did. I uprooted. I relocated, changed my names, changed job course because I went from clinical work as a psychologist to teaching. And I actually loved it. Like I said, this was after 18 months. And it was really after I moved, after I unpacked, that I really was able to start processing my grief. Because up to that point in time, I was putting out fires. It was bills, it was the media, it was my health, it was reporters, it was detectives, it was selling my house, it was always something. So after I moved and I could exhale, then I really started to absorb what had happened to me. And because of the era, and because I knew no one in that, by choice, I knew no one where I lived, I knew that it was up to me to fix me, and I had to figure out a plan, a way of doing that. Because this is, as I said, prior to the internet, prior to grief groups, I was living in a very small town so that even if there was a therapist, I wouldn't have gone there because it's such a small town. Everybody knows your business. So I decided to keep my mouth shut, tell nobody, and fix myself. And I went about that by design. What I mean by that is I knew from my training that If somebody wants to change their life for the better and have it durable, they have to approach it three ways. They have to approach it. It's called the biopsychosocial model, meaning that they have to address three dimensions of their functioning. So I had to address it biologically, sociologically, and psychologically. Because I was teaching graduate school in cross-cultural psychotherapy, I thought I could kill two birds with one stone by approaching the sociological first. So one of the things I decided to do to both help me and help my career was to travel internationally by doing volunteer work to very remote places on the globe. And I went to five different continents. I went deliberately by to places that were way off the grid. I'm talking no electricity, monkeys in your room, horrendous climate, army ants, you name it. I've dealt with it. 
And the beauty of that was it really permanently put my situation in perspective. I came home time after time with a totally new view of my life and the life of other Americans. I started taking note of the things that I had taken for granted, like clean water, paved roads, my rights as a woman, a police department, a shelter. I didn't think of those things before. Women that I had met in other cultures had no rights. They had horrendous trauma. There would be zero chance of any remediation, any intervention ever in their life. And it really put my situation to perspective, as I said. So I came away feeling humbled by that and feeling like I have no right to complain. In fact, what I must do is have gratitude for what's going right in my world, for the resources I do have. That lifted my depression. It opened me up to other worlds that I had been a part of and essentially put me on a different path. Really, it did. I think it also enhanced my teaching because I could say, I could lift up a jug and say, this is the jug that they use in Kenya for blood milk. This is what it smells like. This is why they have blood milk. And communicate to my students the reality of other cultures, not just from a book or training or workshop. So that was part of my self-help. Then the other dimension, as I mentioned earlier, was the physical dimension. And because my health had not been the greatest after the homicide, I had severe insomnia. I had lost a lot of weight. I had My hair had thinned. I'd gone into menopause in, at 32, or 38, sorry, 38 years of age. I had just, my blood pressure been, I just knew that things were not healthy. So I joined a gym. And after I joined the gym, I joined a group of women at the gym who met four mornings a week at 6.30 a.m. sharp. And if you didn't show up, they'd be at your door. I mean, it was like, you better have a damn good explanation, sister, why you are not here. There was no excuses. And so we trained together for four mornings a week for years. And in about, there's a group of about five of us. And I'd say in approximately, it was either the third or fourth year of us being together that Lori and I, one of the group members, and I decided, look, we're in good shape now. Why don't we do triathlons? She said, that's a great idea. So we did. So we joined um, different triathlon groups, and it was addicting. That first year, I did five. And mind you, I'm a crappy swimmer. I did the backstroke. I mean, my, my goal was not to break any records. My goal was to finish. I wanted to be somewhere between the person who gets out because they might drown and the person who crosses the finish line first. I didn't care. And one of the cool things about one of the triathlons that we joined, the Danskin, is that they have a policy or a, a tradition, I guess I should say, that no woman crosses the finish line last. Not that we were the last person to cross, but it's tradition that you, you cross the finish line with somebody in tandem. That builds community. And after doing five triathlons, I felt really strong. I felt can do. I was surrounded by people who were disciplined, who took their health seriously, and who were not sinking in self-pity at all. I mean, if we fell and injured our knee, we just got up and kept going. If our bike broke, we figured out how to do that, you know. And I won't go into the long story of it, but it ended up saving my life because of the physical endurance I had been under for all those years. And I fell and broke my arm while I was climbing a muddy hill and and they discovered cancer early because I had the kind of cancer that destroys bones. So because of that, every oncologist I have met since says, boy, your bones are strong. And it really made me respond better to the stem cell treatment and so forth. 
that was an offshoot I had not seen coming. That was a benefit. So I addressed the physical part of it. And that it probably goes without saying, but when you are addressing the physical dimensions of trauma, not only do you work on things that get you in better shape, even if it's just climbing the stairs every day, that's fine. But you also stay away from things that interfere with your health, like cigarettes and cigars and drugs and alcohol and fatty foods. All that has to go if you're going to be serious about this. Because to this date, I've never read anything that talks about the benefits of fatty foods and so forth. So the health dimension had to be addressed. Now, it didn't bring back my fertility. I still was in permanent uh, menopause, but my hair thickened. I responded well to the cancer treatment, and I finally gained some weight back, and it was muscle weight, which was good, although I did end up losing that in the cancer treatment. And then the last piece of what I had, and this is all while I reiterate, this is all while I had not mentioned anything about the homicide. We're talking, now I'm about eight, nine years in after the murder, and I still hadn't mentioned it to anybody. Well, I, I relocated again. I eventually remarried. And I still hadn't talked about it. In fact, my my new husband had to pull it out of me. You know, it's true. You know, when you're dating somebody and you're kind of getting serious, you want to know a little bit about their background. He knew that I had been married before. That's about all he knew. And I said, well, he died. Well, could you tell me a little bit more? I said, and eventually I will. I'll just say he he didn't die of natural causes. And he was like, what does that mean? And I said, he was killed, but I'll go into it later. So we really dated about a year before I even sat down and told him the story. And he really did not know the full story till many years after we were married and he read my book about it. I think at that point in time, he didn't care. And he said, look, I married who you are. And if I don't know the details, I'm fine with that. So after 30 years, after we were married, I had a relative call me who owns a crime scene cleanup business, biorecovery remediation. She suggested a podcast. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't even listen to podcasts. I don't know anything about podcasts. And she said, well, look into it. It might be cool because I don't know of any podcast out there that is uniquely set aside for other homicides. Well, we're called homicide survivors. It's kind of a weird name, but that's what we're referred to. I don't know of any other podcast out there devoted to homicide survivors. So it would be a niche. And I go, that's true. So I I happened to be interviewed at that point in time by Javier Leveda, who has the podcast um, Pretend. He was extremely helpful and supportive and encouraging for me to move on with this idea. So I did. And it turns out that that was the third piece I needed. I did not know then when I started the podcast, how much I would benefit from it, how much the connection with other homicide survivors would heal me psychologically. And I learned a great deal from them. The podcast is set up that I have interviews with people who've been through it usually years ago, but not always. And what I found was they are survivors. They are warriors. They are experts in what it's like to survive trauma. And they're all different. And I learned a lot from them. And so now we're past 30 years out, and now I can speak of it freely, but it was a long process. And as I said, it, it evolved out of those three different dimensions of my background. If you could tell us, you know, what is a homicide survivor? A homicide survivor is anyone, not necessarily a blood relative, is anyone who is grieving the loss of somebody close to them who has been murdered. It could be a friend, could be a coworker, but it's often a relative. Sometimes I've interviewed homicide detectives who were extremely affected by one or two of the cases that they've worked on. They can't shake it. They're a homicide survivor, too. And I've said to other people, if you want to understand the experience of being a homicide survivor and 
assuming you're 30 years of age or older. All you got to do is think about what it was like to be in 9-11. Those first moments when you first saw the footage on TV, when you first heard about the planes going into the towers, when you first saw people running for their lives, when you first realized this was a deliberate mass homicide by people who didn't care. In fact, they committed suicide in order to commit homicide. What were your earliest, earliest sensations? What did you think? What did you feel? That's a taste of what it feels like to be a homicide survivor, that feeling of loss of control and disbelief and rage. It's very common. And it seems like shock is a big factor. So, you know, there's that initial shock that occurs when you hear a loved one has been the victim of a homicide. So how do you, how do you just, how do you deal with that? It's a process. It takes years. And the shock that you mentioned is universal. And it gives rise to a lot of misconceptions. Like detectives, when they interview somebody in shock, they'll think, my God, she doesn't seem bothered. Her child was snatched and murdered. She's not even crying because she's in shock. Right. So the very first thing people need, it's kind of an instantaneous twofold thing they need to be doing ASAP. One, they need to see a physician. They need to see a physician for the problems, the physical problems which are going to emerge, like insomnia, hypertension, indigestion, teeth grinding. And they need to see a physician for the pre-existing health conditions that are going to worsen, like diabetes, psoriasis, IBS. The other thing they need to do in, in, in the earliest hours, besides, actually, there's three things I can think of now, besides contacting a healthcare provider, the second thing is to think about their safety. They're so consumed with the loss of their loved one, they're not thinking about their personal safety, but they need to be because the person may not have been arrested. And even if they have, they have friends. And the friends might misunderstand what you're doing. They might think, oh, you're going to go, you found evidence and you're going to go to the homicide detectives with it. Or they want revenge because you called the police. You know, who knows they're thinking, but you have to be thinking about your own safety. There have been cases where people have come back and done harm to the people who have already been harmed, but you're not thinking about that. And so that's why a friend can be very, very helpful at that, that point, but they're one step removed. So they're, they're able to think about safety easier than you are. And the third thing you need to be doing early on, which will probably be facilitated by the detective, but maybe not, is to contact the prosecuting office and to get in touch with the victim advocate. A victim advocate's role is to help plug in different resources and lead you through the investigation as much as you can be. There's going to be a lot of things you're not going to be aware of. You're not privy to knowing, but at least it's the it's the beginnings of support from people who who should know what they're doing. The reality, though, is that there's too few victim advocates out there. And so many people turn to unofficial victims advocate through support groups online. But those three things are imminent. Taking care of your health, taking care of your safety, and getting connected with victim advocates. I'm not saying it will cut the shock off, but it will reduce it. And it will direct it into a better place than if you just sat there wringing your hands or turned to drugs or alcohol to deal with it. Most people understand the details of a homicide through the news, media, film, and television. What does the media or entertainment industry get wrong about homicides? And what are some oh. myths about homicides? I love this question. I wish everybody asked this question. Oh, where do I begin? Yeah, we don't have very many Detective Bensons out there, let me tell you. If you are a person of color, you're going to have a rougher time of it, first off. 
And in today's post-COVID era where we have police funds being cut, there's a there's a, an effect of that, which is that detectives are taking on more and more work with fewer, fewer resources. Labs are backed up, supports, are, you know. So they're on the run. They're they don't have time for anybody at this point in time. So sometimes, I hate to say this, but it's true. Sometimes they're in such a rush to judgment. I'm not saying this is across the board. Understand that. I There are some wonderful detectives out there, and I had one, thank God. But there is such a rush, rush to judgment some of the times that even the homicide survivor is wrongly accused and convicted of the homicide. And they may easily spend 15, 20 years before they're exonerated. Some never get exonerated. That's one myth, is that they catch the guy. At the current standing, 50% of homicides go unsolved. It's a throw of the dice. There's lots of reasons for that. We have more stranger upon stranger homicides, thrill killings. We have people that are less willing to cooperate with police and won't give information. As I said a moment ago, we have police that are stretched thin. We have labs that can't process data. We have labs that are in New York that are so backed up with processing samples in order to make an arrest that they use vacant cells in in jails to lock up the evidence in the hope that someday they'll get to it. So there's a lot of reasons why there is unresolved homicides. That's one myth is that, you know, if you look at law and order, everybody gets caught. Not true. Another myth is this thing called closure. You'll hear it tossed around a lot by reporters, by attorneys, by others that, oh, well, when they get arrested or when they get to trial or if they get a conviction, the homicide survivor will get closure. That's not true. You don't get closure. It's life-altering. Another myth would be that you get support socially from friends and and other distant relatives. The reality is that it usually wanes after three months. After three months, people go back to their life and or worse yet, they want to avoid you because of the stigma that comes with the, quote, scandal of homicide. Friends will stop returning your calls. Employers may change your duties so that you don't have public contact. People bully your children in school. So that stigma sets in and that makes it worse. Now, that social support will come again. It will increase again at at critical times, like at arrest times, the beginning of the trial, the uh, time of the uh, conviction or innocence determination, and maybe, maybe at the time of parole. You pretty much go it alone after about three months. And that comes as a surprise to many people who are homicide survivors, and they assume wrongly that it's them. It's their circle of friends, but it's not. It's pretty much a universal turnover is to be expected. On the positive side, you'll also find new friends along the way, often from support groups and others who've helped, and it will strengthen some of your friendships. Like There's a whole chapter in my book dedicated to friends and what they can do to help you in the early hours and weeks following a homicide. If they follow through and do those things, they're probably going to be your buddy for life. It's kind of like a trauma bond. And they've been in on the inside and they understand and they were there at your your most vulnerable moments. You'll never forget them. So it's not a, a total blank slate. There are people that will stick by you and will become even deeper friends. But the majority, it really cuts through it. And you find out who was just superficially your friend and who really is your friend. And in terms of with law enforcement, so how much contact do survivors of homicide have with law enforcement? Are detectives often sympathetic to them or are they also just not aware of how to deal with survivors of homicide and how they're victims themselves? I would say it runs the gamut. I was very, very fortunate to have Detective Landeros. I 
she's an was an amazing woman. She was able to stay professional, but connect with me early on in a way that was incredibly useful. She was so in tune to me that she knew when to stop talking. She could tell when I couldn't take in one more piece of information. She knew when to stop talking so I could digest the question that she was asking me because during trauma, the blood flow to the speech centers of your brain is reduced. So you can't comprehend and speak normally. You you tend to have fragmented speech. That's about the time the media shoves a microphone in your face. She knew when to halt and so I could get my thoughts collected and answer her. So there are homicide detectives like that out there. Uh, She was one of the first, if not the first, black homicide detective in Detroit. And she was incredible. I stayed in touch with her after she died. Her daughter called me out of the blue in 2018 to tell me her mother had died from a traffic-related fatality related to her job and asked me to do the eulogy. And I flew back to Detroit and did it. That's how much she meant to me. I'll never forget her. But then there are other homicide detectives who are not only callous, they're judgmental, and flippant and totally ignorant of what it is you're going through. They say the wrong thing, they do the wrong thing, and they don't want to be schooled in what to do. They're in a rush. They're thinking only in terms of case closure. If you think back to that TV series that was on, I think it was Netflix, called The Making of a Murderer, it shows you the lengths to which some will go, some detectives will go to to pin a murder on somebody so they can check it off their list and get an attaboy. What they were doing in that interview is something called the read technique, R-E-I-D, read technique of interviewing, which starts with an assumption of guilt and looks to pin the murder on somebody so that they can check it off their list and say, hey, look how good I am. They don't really care about who's innocent and who's not, and they will pin the murder on people. And once you're in the clutches of the system, as that TV series shows, it is incredibly difficult to get out. There's not the resources. There's not the interest. There's not the money. And so you stay stuck. Uh, There's a case right now, as we're talking, in Texas of um, Melissa Lucio. She was a Hispanic woman who was special education, severe domestic violence her whole life, back-to-back pregnancies, whose last little child had a physical deformity where her toes crossed, so she couldn't walk straight. She tended to tumble easily. She tumbled down the stairs of their apartment complex and died. EMS notes failed to mention this child's physical deformity that probably led to her falling down the stairs. The EMS notes failed to talk to, failed to put in the notes, the neighbors who said, oh, we know she fell the day before, same thing when a neighbor was babysitting. So this child probably had the makings of a brain bleed at the next day when the mother was home. The police came out, they arrested her, they interrogated her using the read technique for hours and hours. She was pregnant at the time. She ended up under the table in a fetal position crying after denying about 30 times she had nothing to do with it. And again, she's probably not the brightest person you've ever met. She said in a halting speech, well, maybe I did it. That's all it took. She's now on death row. She was slated to be executed in April. The governor put a stay in of execution to delay it. She has people on both sides of the aisle in Texas, Republicans and Democrats, screaming for her release, but the DA won't budge. That's the kind of nightmare you can get into. It's like a Hitchcock movie. 
once you're in it. And that's why I'm involved so much in the Innocence Project, because many homicide survivors don't understand these things. And when they get into court, that courtroom, if they get into that courtroom, as I said, 50% never get that day. But if you get in there, and especially if you've heard there's been a, quote, confession, you want blood. You want a conviction. And they don't leave room for the possibility of innocence. And that's why I'm involved to bring the message to homicide survivors. Hey, you got to, you know, it's, you got to prove this beyond the shadow of a doubt. We're talking about people's lives here. They could end up on death row. Innocent people have been knowingly executed, knowingly been executed. I'm not saying it's rampant. I'm not saying it's even 10% of who's behind bars, but one is too many. So that's a domino effect that people don't think about. Yeah, it's people don't understand until they're in that situation just how badly things could actually go. You know, it has a a big psychological effect on people as well. And so uh, my next question for you, you know, obviously there's there are changes, you know, when things change from from, you know, when you found out about your husband's murder to, you know, during the trial, then after and and that can affect you greatly psychologically, right? It kind of changes you um, throughout, I assume. And did you seek out any uh, help from a mental health professional? And do the survivors of homicide tend to seek out medical, mental health help? The closest I came to seeking out professional mental health care would be from my mentor early on. I had a mentor from my postdoctoral fellowship program who was a psychologist, and I I turned to him because he knew me and already, and I trusted him with my life. But he even had never had experience with this, and that is the case with multiple, I'd say the majority of mental health personnel is they have no let alone training. They don't have any personal experience with this. They, they've never worked with somebody else who's been in a homicide. So they're at a loss as to what to do. And so what I recommend to people is two things. Either seek out a mental health clinician who is, and the, the buzzword is trauma-informed. That means they've been trained, they've had some experience, or f- at least, uh, and maybe preferably, go to a support group. Ideally, do both if you can. If you can find a trauma-informed therapist who is open to you being in a support group, that's like the Cadillac, if you could do that. Because there are benefits you can only get from a support group you cannot get from a clinician, such as you're going to get the opinions of multiple people. You're going to meet multiple people who are in your shoes. And you're going to get information known only to other homicide survivors, not by choice. It just is the way it is. For example, other homicide survivors will be able to tell you what they did to calm themselves and to bring honor to their loved one, what traditions they use, what kind of techniques they used, kind of physical things that they used. And you're going to get a variety of answers to that question. Like, for example, there was a family whose daughter was murdered, a teenage daughter was murdered in the driveway. After some time, the neighbors pooled together their money, and for this family, they donated money to purchase and install a very beautiful, expensive granite dawn-to-dusk light in their driveway, right where the murder occurred. And it brought the family a lot of peace. It was like they're putting light where the murder was. Well, I don't think the average clinician would know those things. You know, this is some of the things that people do to heal. Or in my case, it was getting a podcast or doing triathlons. I don't think the average clinician would know those things. So that's some of the benefits that you're going to get by going to a support group if you can find the right one. And I think in-person is better than virtual if you can find that. 
if it's practical. You might be in a wheelchair and that's not, you know, you might not be able to realistically do that or you might live out in the middle of a state where there isn't any. It's surprising some places where there aren't any. That doesn't mean you can't start one, by the way. But uh, I think in-person is better. The way I think about it is this, you know, think about the difference between a virtual cruise versus standing on the deck, feeling the salt wind in your face. I mean, it's totally different being in a real support group. Now, at this point in my life, I, I've been party to support groups, but usually let, leading them, not being a participant, because I'm 38 years out from it. Quick answer your questions. No, mental health therapy is not the first recommendation I would make, not to just some generic therapist out there. No. There's like a process. They have to be trained. Survivors of homicide, like sometimes when they're trying to heal it can be very hard if, you know, the story is just kind of being put out there by the media, by journalists, by TV shows, especially if it's a high profile case. So how do you deal with that? How does one deal with that when they're trying to escape from it in a way, but it's everywhere? Right. There's three choices you can have. Mine was to not communicate whatsoever. The other option is to communicate fully. But the third and best option, I think, is to get a family spokesperson. They're one step removed. It could be your attorney. It could be a friend. It could be your pastor, a friend, a neighbor of your choosing. And you and you hand them a list and you say, these are off topic. You you may not answer these questions if you choose to answer questions. You could even say, you're going to read my statement. That's it. No questions asked. But you can tell them, this is what I want. It's okay to talk about. This is not okay to talk about. And set them out there. That's one option. I think that's the best option. The next, probably closest to that, but not as ideal, is to put out a statement on social media and to direct all media there, like put a post on Facebook or Twitter and direct all media there. Another option would be to choose journalist of your choosing that you trust and then tell everybody else, sorry, it's already been done, over with, goodbye. Put a note on your door saying what your wishes are and, and have a friend and perhaps a neighbor help that get respected. In other words, what I'm saying is, let's say you've done your interview and you've said no more interviews, they're still going to come. So what you can do is put a note on your door, say, do not knock. Media has been here. Leave us alone. We want our privacy. And if you have a neighbor that you trust, they can park in front of your house for the first couple of days or have several friends park their cars in your driveway and around your house so they can't even get close to your house. They have to walk up. It gives everybody time to talk with them and say, go away. And you might have to do that again at the funeral. In my case, they were so disruptive at the funeral that I had people there arguing with them, saying, you bastards, haven't you had enough? Get out of here. I mean, arguments broke out. I left early. I didn't, I ducked out the moment I could, borrowed somebody's car and left because they were just like vultures. As I say in my book, they were like fruit flies over sangria. Too many of them have no respect. Because it's all about the story. It's all about the byline. It's all about the media. At this point, I do want to give props to Tamara Cherry. She is a crime was a crime reporter in Toronto, Canada, who got her fill of this and who's now kind of flipped to the other side. And she is trying to train other reporters on into being sensitive to the needs of homicide survivors and to have it embedded in their training in school. She has a group that she has called Pickup Communications. Pickup is a term used within journalism to mean it's a it's a crime story. Hurry, go get it. So she has pickup communications, and she's trying to spread the word to other journalists. And it was ironic that I had such a low opinion of 
journalist after what I'd been through. And yet here's this woman who comes along and she ended up doing the forward to my book because I respect her. She gets it. But there are very few Tamara cherries out there. But the majority are completely insensitive and persistent. Let's talk a little bit about your book. You know, well, I mean, you've also written two books. What led you to write your story and then write about helping and advocating? The first book, A Life Divided, came after 30 years. And what drove me to write it was to twofold. One was everybody outside of the situation had their day in court, the detectives, the, the people who did the homicide, and nobody got it right. There had been another book written about it from a reporter, and it reads like a newspaper account. There was so much that was missed. And I thought, well, of course there's so much missed. They, ha- they didn't live through it. And I wanted to get the message out, and this kind of leads to the second reason why I wrote it. I want to get the message out what the reality is like so the public in general can understand and other homicide survivors can feel validated. So I tried to make, I was struggling with this in a couple of ways. One is I wanted to make it as factual and accurate as I could. I wanted to get the dates right, names right, the locations right. And I did a lot to do that. For example, I read read 11 pounds of court testimony just to make sure I got all the details of the court case right. I revisited Detroit a couple of times and went through all the nuances with a detective with me. And I wanted to make sure it was accurate. On the the other hand, I wanted to make it as subjective as possible so that the person reading the book could feel as if they're seeing it through my eyes and feeling what I'm feeling and hearing my thoughts, being in my shoes to walk them through the process. Not that I'm saying it's like everybody goes through that. Everybody's unique, but at least it's one authentic experience of what it's like to be in the shoes of a homicide survivor. So that was my reason for doing that. Second, The second book is very different, and I, I still wasn't satisfied after the first book with, did I do enough to communicate? No, I didn't. There's more to it than what I said in terms of, okay, so now what? That just became the title of the book. Now what? What do you do? Because one of the realities of being a homicide survivor, and perhaps this is true of rape survivors as well and suicide survivors too, the resources you need are incredibly fragmented. And they, there is no crosstalk between them. You're going to need to be in, talking to the DA. You need to talk with your physician. You may need crime scene cleanup. You have a victim advocate and so on and so forth. There's no crosstalk between them. A doesn't know what B is doing and C doesn't know what A is doing. And, and it's up to you to coordinate it all. It's up to you to find out who you need to, because you don't even know what questions to ask in the beginning. You're just so overwhelmed. So I wanted to write a book that said, this is the blueprint. I'm not saying it's the last word on everything, but I wanted to lead people through from starting with the death notification, getting your friend together, dealing with the media, funeral planning, the beginning of the investigation, and lead people on through the nuances chapter by chapter, ending with parole of the convicted and advocacy. Not that everybody has to be an advocate, but many end up do being an advocate. And I wrote it in such a way that people could skip chapters. For example, there's a chapter on grief in children. Like in my case, it wouldn't have been relevant. I did not have children then. Or there's a chapter on crime scene cleanup. That's, again, not relevant if you if the murder did not play, take place in your business or your home. So I wrote it in such a way that you could skip over chapters that weren't in importance to you. And secondly, I repeated certain things deliberately in certain chapters that were it was relevant and important because people aren't absorbing it. 
like I said, you're in shock. You might have to read the chapter three times. So I tried to make the chapters as brief as I could and give a summary at the end of key points. So if you didn't get these three points, maybe you better go back and read it again. There's also pages and pages of resources listed in there, what agencies are out there. And there's also books, videos. So I'm, I'm, I was trying to make it as short as I could. It didn't end up, end up being that short because that factors into the price and willingness of people to buy it. I had, in fact, it was Tamara Cherry who got my book and she said, my God, it looks like a Bible. It's so long. And I said, I didn't know how to cut it down anymore. What do I drop out? Do I drop out the investigation, the funeral planning, the grief in children? It's all relevant. There's a lot to it. My uh, editors recommended I write three volumes, but the reason I didn't want to do that is because people are in a state of flux. They're moving literally geographically at this point in their life to get away from it. They could lose a copy. And I think it could be more overwhelming to keep track of three things instead of one. So I said, no, I want it in one volume even, and let's make it a little longer. So we went around and around on that. We also went around and around on the cover. And as people from Michigan, you'll probably understand this. Other people won't get this, but we went around and around on the cover because I wanted the cast corridor because that's where the murder occurred. They insisted on the Renaissance Center with the traditional view from Canada. And I said, it has nothing to do with the Rensen. And they're going, nobody cares. If you were studying a, a homicide in Phoenix, would you care that the cover was Tempe? Probably not. And you might not even know. And I said, but it's important to me. I want it to cast court. She said, no, because if you picture the cast court on the cover, nobody's going to buy it. It's too depressing. So we went around and finally I said, I still don't believe you. I'm going to do a survey. So I did a survey on three different sites that I had access to. And here's what I found is that the people from Detroit and Michigan voted with me and everybody else voted against me. <laughs> so we went with what they wanted because not every reader is going to be from Detroit. But that's how the re cover ended up being the Renaissance Center. Not my wishes, but I, I said, OK. <laughs> oh, it was a great place to grow up. I loved yeah. it there and I hated giving it up. That was hard when I finally had to say, I got to get away from the media. I got to get away from the notoriety and from the stigma. It was not, it, despite the murder, it was not an easy thing for me to do. I, I loved Greek town and I, I loved where I grew up and I had relatives in various cemeteries around the city. And, you know, it, was, it becomes a part of you. And to give that all up, not because you really want to, is hard, but I did. And I'm glad I did. It was necessary, but I, it wasn't an easy option. So on that note, you know, what are some of the positive ways that survivors of homicide can cope with and heal from, you know, what they've faced? Is it kind of upending and starting a new life somewhere else? Not necessarily. If you have sufficient support, which I didn't, my I didn't have a relative. They'd all left by that. I was the only one left standing. <laughs> they all retired or moved out many years earlier. And so I had no relatives to lean on. Um, I had no children to bind me to the city. They, they weren't going to school there or anything. But some people stay put. I think some of the things that they need to do is, like I said, see a doctor, a physician to get themselves physically sleeping because without that, nothing else matters. They need to get informed. They need, I don't mean just what the victim advocate can tell you because they're more focused on the legal end of things. But get informed in the big picture. Know that when your friends desert you, it's not just you. That's how it goes. Find uh, support online or in person, preferably in person. Read books, uh, look, listen to podcasts, and you will find that there's a community out there that is worldwide that sadly is ever expanding that you're a part of. And it's not going to change. I mean, homicides are way down from where they used to be in the 1800s. They've never even come close to the Wild West. But 
they've gone up in the last three years from where they were in the 80s to almost approximately where they were in the 80s. But it's still not like, what <laughs> if you listen to the news, you'd think everybody's getting killed and there's a serial murderer behind every corner. That's another myth. That's not true. Um, you have a better chance of dying rolling out of bed than being killed by a serial murderer. But they don't tell you that because it doesn't sell. So I think homicide survivors need to know they're not alone. They need to know resources, which is why I wrote the book. I mean, I'm not saying that just to push the book, but it's true. I, there is so little out there in terms of resources because homicides survivors as a group hide after the death. We don't advocate for ourselves. We hide. We don't want to be interviewed. We don't want books written about us. We're not in research. Podcasts deal with the perpetrator, not the aftermath. So there's very little out there that is known. And that's why I wrote the book is to say there's a whole bunch of stuff out there, but nobody's collected it. This is a good start. And maybe eventually there'll be a volume two. But I think being informed, being supported, taking care of yourself physically is a, is what people need to do and to realize they're not by themselves. Because I think stigma brings that about, it makes you want to hide. And trauma is hard enough without having any sense of community at all. We don't have parades in our honor. We don't have, you know, statues. We don't have days on a calendar. Well, we do, but nobody knows about it. September 25th. Nobody knows that that's Homicide Survivor Day, but nobody knows that. And the focus is not on the aftermath. It's on the perpetrator. There's all, If you look at serial murderers, you're going to find tons of stuff. But there are so few of them and so many of us. And I'm, I'm out to try to change that by talking with homicide survivor, or homicide detectives. I just got back from talking to a bio-recovery cleanup group, a national conference. I'm now applying to speak with a media group. And also, believe it or not, I'm also in the process of applying to speak at a national conference for CPAs. And you might ask, well, what do CPAs have to do with homicide survivors? Well, that's a good question. Every homicide survivor has financial repercussions, every one of us, and they're, at, they're immediate. You had to come up with the money for the funeral. You have lost wages from having to meet with people like detectives and, and uh, your physician and relatives coming from out of town. You lose revenue. Maybe the breadwinner is the one who died. If the, if the crime scene cleanup was in your house, that's a lot of money. You might have legal expenses to change the deed. I mean, it goes on and on in terms of the financial repercussions. Anybody talking about that? If you even Google that, you're not going to find anything. Well, it has financial repercussions and nobody's prepared. I wasn't. And my husband left me $30,000 in debt, not just broke. I had to dig my way, my way out of that. Pay IRS. Pay behind, pay behind household bills, household um, mortgages before I could even sell the house. And then there's this stigma associated with the house that you're selling called a stigmatized property. It's for three years. And according to realtors, on average, nationally, you lose 13% of your home value the first thir three years of your after the death on your house value. I lost 25% because people don't want to buy a house where people are driving by, pointing and taking pictures or stealing mementos. In my case, they stole bricks out of my driveway. I had to keep replacing bricks in my driveway. Nobody thinks about those nuances. And when they happen, people think it's just them. It's not. So I want to talk to CPAs too and say, hey, is anybody talking about this in your field? Because you need to be. Maybe come up with a booklet, something. Do a course on this while people are in training. And the bottom line is there's a lot of work to be done and too few people interested to help. 
I'll try. It's amazing because there's just so much involved and just you never would have thought that there's just so much that goes into this. No, you don't. Yeah. I didn't till I had to. Yeah. That's why I appreciate the interview and being having a chance to say all this because you can't do it in a text message, you know, when people <laughs> ask you questions. <laughs> the different aspects of like life, right? Financial, medical. I don't know if that's Social. on your list, talking to like physicians about the medical aspects. Yes, I have not done I've talked to my own physicians about it, but I haven't talked to a group yet. Ultimately, what I would love to have is like a national symposium, like we did with AIDS. And they bring in all the players and say, we got to get this coordinated. We need attorneys on board and CPAs and media. And let's, because it's affecting any culture, any socioeconomic group, both genders, any age. It's an equal opportunity club. Anybody could join at any time. But well, nobody's coordinating it. And I, I think that needs to be done. We're not even addressing it individually. Like if you look at journalism training, nobody's addressing it at the academic level. If you look at it in psychology, nobody's addressing it at the academic level and so on and so forth. There's just, it's like a big black hole and I'm trying to fill it. I, I, and I know other people that are as well. Some, many of them are, who are on my podcast are doing wonderful work. And that's why I'm talking to Innocence Group. And, and I'm in my 70s, so I'm feeling a little sense of urgency. <laughs> There's so much to do and so little time. You're like, we've got to get on it. When you're not writing, advocating, educating, podcasting, traveling, what are you doing? Gardening. I love my garden. I love my garden. I sleep in my garden. I have a tent in the back surrounded by rhododendrons that has electricity in it. It's a three-man tent. I can stand up in it fine. It's glamping, I guess, is what they say today. And I sleep out there maybe four nights a week. And my husband said, because I remarried, and my husband said, when, where, where's the garden going to end here? And I said, we have five acres. He goes, oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Because I'm out there every chance I get. And I wanted to replicate the beauty of the gardens I saw in Antigua, Guatemala. I fell in love with their gardens. And one of the things I loved about their gardens is it's not separate from the house. You don't like walk outdoors and around the corner to get to the garden. It's another room in the house. The best I could do because of the codes that they have building in the United States is I couldn't put a garden in the middle of my house. So then the next best thing, I knocked out a wall. I mean, I didn't do it. I hired somebody to do this. They knocked out the wall. They put in double doors. We built a veranda out there, which led right to the garden. So you can go right from my computer and see the garden. I put uh, trees out there. Then, and like I have a Chilean uh, rhubarb, which some people call dinosaur food plant. The leaves are about eight feet wide. It's huge. It looks like it's going to eat you. I have that out there. I have a fantail willow. So in fact, it's been on landscaping magazines covers, which is kind of cool. Anyway, I built a path back in there of slate to go to my garden or to go to my tent. I put electricity out there and I sleep out there, as I said, and it's really comfy. I had this noise happen two nights ago or maybe a week ago. I could not put my finger on what noise it was. And it was in the woods, right? It's not near a street. So, and it sounded mechanical. Like it sounded like a scooter on idle. I'm like, what the hell is that? And then it faint, it got fainter and fainter and it went away. I listened to all these different YouTube sound recordings of animals. Like, is it a fox? Is it a raccoon? Is it a cougar? I knew it wasn't a cougar because they don't sound like that. I finally found it in a YouTube video from Montana State University. It was a purring bobcat. 
And I'm thinking, oh, oh, great. All I had between us was a sheet of cloth. Oh, no. Reminded oh. me of Kenya when we were in the tent. Oh. They can kill but people, it was content. Right? Yes, bobcats are um, not safe. Do not. They're, not, they're nasty. They they're look nasty. friendly. They look cute. They do. Don't, they look cute. Don't. But they got that yeah. telltale ear thing going on with mm-hmm. the cute little thing. It's like a Cheshire yeah. cat kind of. Yes. Yeah. That's, Very good yeah. description. And they're yeah. bigger than an average cat. They're not a cougar. They're not a mountain lion. But they're nasty. They're ranky. So I'm glad I didn't know I was in there, and I'm glad I didn't know it was out there at the time. But nonetheless, that's what I do. I garden, and I'm always working on it. It's never done. I'm weeding, or I'm fertilizing, or pruning, or something. You're basically like my dad's like soul sister or something. <laughs> yeah. Why yeah. oh, does he like to garden? Uh yeah. He's his his like goal is to get on like Michigan's garden. I totally get it. I wow. totally get it. But yeah, my, my husband always knows where to find me if I can't find me in the house. I'm out there somewhere. One of the That's five amazing. acres. <laughs> yeah. It's- no, most of it's woods. But, you know, I started with a hill of weeds that went right down to the house. And I brought, I had a guy brought in with a backhoe and terrace it. And then we went from there and put in brick. And then I said, leave it alone. From here, it's mine. So now I have ferns taller than me. I, I like it because I think nature is healing. When you're in a a beautiful place, it doesn't need to be a garden. It could be a museum. I mean, when you're in a beautiful place that's spacious and calm and quiet, it's good for your head because we live in such a busy, loud world in the United States. We can't think. I just got back from getting a new car yesterday and I was in a major city. I'm like, oh my God, am I glad to get home? I went to bed at 730 because I knew I had this interview. I slept 12 hours just from being in the traffic and dealing with all the people. I'm like, I don't know how I ever used to do this. I just want to get home to my trees. Yeah, yeah. it's right. It's nice That's to right. have that. It's like it's like my dream backyard. I always wanted just like nature and like, I, I don't know, some sort of like gazebo out way out in the back or just yeah. some kind of where I can relax and meditate. Put that on your to-do list and stick with oh, it. Yeah. It's a great, great goal. You yeah. will thank yourself for it. Yeah. There's Especially no substitute. Yourself. Yeah. No. It's, yes. Yeah. Because it partly is, I think, one of the after effects of homicide is I don't want that life anymore. I, I want peace and quiet. I want be, to be able to complete a thought without being interrupted. I don't want to see my neighbors. I don't want to hear my neighbors. And I don't. I don't see anybody. I don't even see overhead lines. It's peaceful. And um, I don't ever want to leave it, really. Wow. This was fun. Yeah. yeah. Good. And you didn't expect that when we were going to talk about homicide, did you? <laughs> <laughs> I always get that. Really great information that people need to hear. And, and it, you know, it could really change somebody's life. I'd like to say my favorite quote it's from Helen Keller. And she said, although the world is full of suffering, it is also filled with the overcoming of it. I believe that. Yeah. I believe that. Thank you. Thank you for... Yeah. You know, I can't imagine it's easy to, even if it took you 30 years, but the fact that you were like, I have to do this. Felt like I was driven to do it. And a lot of people who know me now where I live don't even know it's happened to me. I don't bring it up. They don't know. I don't get, I have to have a purpose, a reason for getting into it or I don't, it's not a good conversation breaker, you know? So how was your Christmas? Well, let me tell you about the time I did it as a widow from, I mean, you you just don't get into it, you know? I don't bring it up. They don't know. So it doesn't get discussed. But when there's a purpose, when there's some benefit, then fine. Yeah, I'm okay with it. But it's not something I could have even done 10 years ago, five years ago. I mean, I guess the last question I have is, are you at peace? Oh, yeah, I'm happy. I feel grateful for everything I have. 
I have so much going for me. I have great oncologists. I have a wonderful husband. My children love me. <laughs> they do love me. They show it every day. I have dogs that love me. They sit on me. They're big. I have St. Bernard's. They like to drool on me. I have my garden. And sadly, you know, I've lost people much younger than me. My daughter had a very close friend who I consider to be another daughter, and she died at 23 of an ulcer, of all things. And yesterday when I went to pick up my new car in that city, I visited her grave and I thought, you know, she was only 23. How can I complain? How can I feel jaded when she didn't even have her life to experience? Her life was just getting started. She died of an ulcer. She bled out while she was home alone. And so... You know, it gives you perspective. And I meet wonderful people. And I just feel blessed. I I mean, there's been things I wouldn't want to have to go through a second time. <laughs> but, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger if you are determined to do it. And I, in the beginning, was. When all of this crap came down and I finally moved away, I thought, that's it. They got my house, my husband, my finances, my health, my privacy, my job. That's it. They're not getting another thing from me. I'm drawing a firm line here, and I don't know how I'm going to rebuild my life. I don't know how long it's going to take, what I'm going to do, but I just know I'm going to do it. Because what is the alternative? Cry uncle? No. Uh-uh. What, where is that going to lead? That's a dead end. I am not going to sit there and lick my wounds and feel sorry for myself. That's a, a waste. I looked at when all this crap was happening, I'm looking at it like a learning opportunity, like something good is going to come out of this. I am learning something every day and somehow, some way I'm going to make use of this. I didn't know how, didn't know where, but I did. And, and it took me 30 years, but I did. And so I come back and I, and I look back on my life now and I think, you know, my parents were wonderful. They gave me the tools I needed to have self-confidence. I grew up in Detroit, which forced you to be independent. I had my education. I in an era where women weren't even encouraged to go to college, and I got a doctorate. How can I complain? I've had so much. I mean, yeah, I, I worked for it, but I also had the opportunity. There are so many people out there that don't even get the opportunity. The ones that I've met, I'm thinking in particular from different countries, but even in the United States, you could be born with such disabling conditions or, you know, be passed around in sex, child labor. And so I, I guess I have a perspective of I have not only peace, but I have great, I have a lot of gratitude for this journey that I've been on. And I'm going to die with, die with a smile on my face. I will. Yeah. And you have a lot of educating to do. A lot more. Yeah, there's a lot to be done. But thanks to you, I, I know I'm getting the word out, and hopefully somebody out there will benefit and pass it on. I hope so. That's my goal. Thank you so much. Thank you. Jen. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. We'd like to thank Jan for being on the show today. Jan's journey is a reminder that even in the face of unimaginable tragedy, we have the capacity to heal to help others heal, and to turn pain into purpose. Her resilience is a testament to the extraordinary human capacity to transform suffering into strength. Jan has two books out which you really need to check out. What Now?, which is a guide to helping the survivors of homicide. Then there's A Life Divided, which is her personal memoir about the events in her life. You can find these books on Amazon or in any bookstore, but you can also go to jancantyphd.com. There you can read more about her, her books, her podcast, her blog, 
and any resources that she might have. You can find us on X, formerly Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. We're all over social media. Be sure to visit our website, boundbythefolk.com. You can find us anywhere that you get your podcasts, whether that's Spotify or Apple, Good Pods. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bound by the Cloak. We'll be back again in two weeks with a brand new episode. Until next time, peace. Peace.